This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. And we are live with two legends, legendary Dr. Drew Penske. Now, I don't really have to introduce you to most of America, but there is an international audience, and you may be not as familiar there, but Mm -hmm. it's a real honor having you on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Love being here. And Mark Grobert, who's been on here, what, three times or so now? Seems like it's every day now. I kind of live over here now. It's my new uh, <laughs> home away from home, Eric. I just leave it on live in my living room. I don't know when. If I walk by and you've got a show, I'll sit down. Oh, there you go. There you yeah. go. I'm, I'm here, here to entertain. And um, Mark put this all together, and it's a really big honor to have you. Now, you both are just experts in the field of addiction and we want to talk about that. Also, um, Dr. Drew, I've I've read your book actually a couple times. Cracked? So I, what? Crack the book Cracked or the uh, the narcissism book? Uh, the uh, the mirror effect. Uh, narcissism. Mirror effect. Book. Okay. Yeah, and uh, really really enjoy that. And I would love if we could go over the parallels because I feel like there is an overlap between uh, addiction and narcissism and. You wrote that in 2009, so now we're 12 years later. When that book came out, Kim Kardashian was just barely just barely hitting the scene after doing her tape. Did you at any point imagine where she would be now? Well, and all not, that? not so much her, but the, the narcissistic turn, as, as I call it, has become so pervasive, it's just phenomenal. And I... Uh, much like Christopher Lash, who wrote The Culture of Narcissism in the 70s, e- even I, closer to the present day, did not see how far this would go. Nor uh, did I realize that we would have a turn in the midst of this pandemic and all the Trump uh, chaos towards histrionic. So we've moved off narcissism a bit towards histrionic. So, so give me a minute. I feel like I need a minute. Do you, can I take a minute to kind of explain what narcissism yes. is? And you know, no, because I th- so, people don't know. So I worked talking at, about me personally? Or? Well, I think well, <laughs> then we'll talk to our example case. We'll talk to somebody. <laughs> well, I'm here, right? There's, so uh, anyway, it's always important to study a case once you've heard about the material. Thank you for having me, John. Oh, so, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I worked in a psychiatric hospital. I'm an internist by training, but I started doing moonlighting and then running medical services in a psychiatric hospital in about 1985. And at that time, you know, when you admit a patient to the hospital, there's an admitting sheet with a, you include, you know, the primary diag- psychiatric diagnoses and the, what are called the axis two or the personality diagnoses. And back in the mid eighties, it was all over the place. It was cluster A, cluster B, cluster C, dependent, OCD, all kinds of crazy personality disorders were present in the patients being admitted to the hospital. By the end of that decade, by about 1988, 1989, I noticed that all the other spectrum of personality disorders were vanishing, and we were seeing almost exclusively what are called cluster B, which is narcissistic. These are the narcissistic disorder, narcissism, Mm -hmm. borderline, sociopath, psychopath, those things. And by the 90s, that is all we saw. That was it. It, Narcissism had had clearly taken over, and I started thinking about these things. And it's primarily the result of the really serious wave of childhood trauma we've had in this country, where so-called adverse childhood experiences are piling up one after the other. 
in the name of, hey, man, doing whatever you want to do. Don't worry about divorce. Kids are resilient. Don't worry about that domestic violence. They'll get over it. If you witness domestic violence, if you're the product of divorce, if there's an addict in your family, if someone in your family is incarcerated, that is four adverse childhood experiences, and that markedly increased your risk of psychopathology, addiction, and particularly in the narcissistic spectrum disorders. And by narcissism, we're not talking about people who are full of themselves. We are mm -hmm. talking about people who are deeply wounded, feeling very empty, who can't even identify feeling states, but build a sense of themselves in the world to get what they need, a larger-than-life self to sort of protect themselves from the world and from all the pain that they carry around, but get from the world what they need. And they can be a pain in the ass. Um, not so much <laughs> not so much because they they uh, are, are self-preoccupied, which a lot of people are these days, but in certain circumstances, they lose the capacity for empathy um, and they can be very exploitative. And when people lose empathy, they also will express envy, and envy is the emotion of our day. You look on Twitter, that's envy. That's all what we're seeing there. Now, it has shifted in the last six months to delusional hysteria, which is beyond me that we've, we've gone there. But when you look back, you will see that preoccupying about Nazis and Russians in the, in the Oval Office, if somebody had said that to me five years ago, I would have put them in the hospital. That's delusional thinking. That is delusional preoccupation. And that is the result of histrionics, which we've gotten into in the last six months or so. But, you know, I wanted to write a chapter in that book you're talking about, Ken, Eric, rather, where um, where I wanted to talk about previous times in history where there had been such a uh, explosion of childhood trauma. And the only thing I could find was uh, Aztec. The way they built Aztec warriors was by mm -hmm. tra traumatizing the hell out of kids. And pre-revolutionary France, where kids were routinely left on the door of, uh, of orphanages and were just, just exploited constantly. And in both kids situations, I mean, in the state of the Aztecs, the group had to come together in such a way as to scapegoat somebody every day. They had to kill somebody and throw their body off the temple steps so they didn't act out their own narcissistic rage on each other. They needed to collectively scapegoat a one. And in France, same thing with the guillotines, same thing. And I wanted to write a chapter about how I thought that was coming. I didn't understand that Twitter would be the mechanism. And so here we are. Here we are. So those are, those are the basic basics of, of that book. Well, I'll throw it to Mark because, Mark, you seem to uh, also be around so many different people, musicians, comedians, uh, screenwriters. And, you know, his book actually covered that, the different types where um, – it was funny before it was explained to me, I thought to myself, well, probably the people who are actually more talented are slightly less narcissistic than the people who are less talented. And it, it turned out to be true in the book. And I was like, Oh, hey, look at that. I got the kind inverse. Of, kind of true. The, the, the okay. People that had purposeful talent. In okay, other words, well, if, if you were a master musician, musician right, you, you want to share that with an audience. You're a newscaster. You want to share that what you're doing happens to require a public life. Still some narcissism in there, let's be fair, but not the <laughs> okay. extreme stuff we were measuring. Yeah, I saw a wonderful narcissist last night. I, I watched a couple of episodes of the Unabomber mm. with Ted Kaczynski. Mm. And this guy, angry, vengeful, apparently put into a hospital ward by his mother for weeks at a time where the parents weren't allowed to visit for some reason, Drew. 
Well, uh, he ha he had a psychotic disorder that yeah. is characterized by grandiosity and narcissistic tones. That's right. not that's not narcissism isn't the disorder, the psychotic process, which may have been from hallucinogens. I'm hearing MK Ultra. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, well, he, he was tied up with MK Ultra. He was very involved with. That's right. Right. He was getting shock therapy. At, at one point, he said he wanted to have a sex change, but didn't have the courage to talk to the psychiatrist. He was rejected by a woman. Mm -hmm. And he thought he'd have better chances being as being a woman momentarily. So interesting. I, I, I don't really know, but there seemed to be a lot of narcissism and anger and, and um, delusional thinking. And obviously some, you know, using his 167 IQ to outsmart the man, you know, mm -hmm. leaving him cryptic notes and codes and everything else. But uh, yeah, I forgot about the Unabomb until I was watching it last night. Uh, we lived through that. I don't know where you were, Eric, but. I, I mean, it just seemed to be something that went on for 20 years almost. Really. Yeah, it was going on for quite a He had time. a long run. I've had John <laughs> Fitzgerald on, who um, was the guy who went through the manifesto mm. and and li lined it up. Um, Trivia 40, I don't know if you knew this. The reason why he was caught is because his English was more perfect than anybody's. Huh. Kaczynski's English? Mm. Yes. He, he, this... um, he had a particular phrase. We always say you can't, um, what is it? You can't have a cake and eat it, too. Mm -hmm. It actually was originally, you can't eat your cake and have it too. Hmm. And that's a weird turn. He wrote it in a letter to, um, you know, taunting letter. And then it was also in the manifesto. So that way hmm. they knew the name of the letter that came from plus, plus the brother. That was the lock that put it in. And it was ironic because the reason it stood out was because he was actually correct. Hmm. There were wow. zero typos, wow. zero grammatical errors, zero anything. The guy is a freaking genius by mm -hmm. all accounts mm -hmm. with the side effect of liking to bomb people. <laughs> well, it's interesting. He was being interviewed by a woman uh, from a, I was wondering who was interviewing him in this documentary. And it turns out that she's from a group called Earth First, Drew, that became a terrorist organization that blew up a lot of things in the 80s and 90s in the Northwest. Hey, well, she's good times. was interviewing him in prison. And he's very friendly to her wow. because they seem to be a syncopatico uh, kind of a situation. And she's giggling. He's giggling. And I'm going, what kind of a nutty show is this? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, letting the Black Panthers interview BLM. You're not going to get a, a fair take on this thing. <laughs> but so it is irony, too, that his cell is probably bigger than where he was living. Oh, wow. that's interesting. interesting. That's interesting. And yeah. He, he has but, unlimited library supplies. He was completely isolated. So now he doesn't have to think about food. Uh, it, it's a it was a really crazy case if you think about it, but his life may actually be better than it was when he was on the lamb harming. Right. But let, let me use that as a jumping off point for a little bit on homelessness sure. too, because uh -huh. the, his thought disorder, those psychotic disorders are highly represented on the streets, particularly of Los Angeles. And we allow people with addiction uh, to use until they die, five are dying a day on the streets of Los Angeles. And we allow people with serious psychotic illness to wander around in, 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 in circumstances that will, could also potentially result in their death. And to your point about being better off once they are moved into somewhere that is not just their disease, they're much happier. They're much better off. But they don't have a single clinician, a single physician overseeing any of these homeless resources that are administering serious mental illness and chronic psychiatric problems. 
it's literally the same as if we had a ward in the hospital where five people were dying every day, but no, we don't allow doctors in here. We don't allow mm -hmm. any doctors to supervise that ward. Five people are dying a day of the illnesses that we care for in here. No doctors, no doctors. And it's, well, it's, it's going it's to become, you know, the homeless industrial complex that we've talked about. There's now thousands and thousands of people working at NGOs and nonprofits just making a salary off this thing, Drew. I mean, it's become a separate industry like the prison industrial complex. Right. It, it is. And, and but it, it the you know, I was appointed to a county board here. And then there was this huge outcry because how God forbid a doctor be on the board. And <laughs> uh, and these people really expose themselves. They are not interested in changing the current situation. No, it, it's serving some function for a lot of people and any attempt to come in and kind of look at things and listen and learn and try to maybe try some different ideas that is met with abject pushback. Well, if, if I may interject, Cloward and Piven, who you're abstractly referring to, who uh, was so, a leftist sociologist in the 70s that I studied for some reason at the new school, felt that um, welfare itself could break the back of capitalism. And they were the ones who uh, rallied forces to sign every single person up to food stamps and to welfare who were qualified to get it. They were the ones who started that whole movement. And their intention by doing this was not benevolent. It was to break the back of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And that has shifted to homelessness of certain people on the left. Uh, Marxist ideology now feels that capitalism itself could break the back of capitalism. So that, that um, is kind of shifted. I, I just look at the human, the human cost. And as a clinician, these are Ill, like I said, so, so let me complete my story. Uh, I, I ended up working in the psychiatric hospital in the eighties and kept stayed there running their medical services. Guess where the medical problems were down in the drug units. So I'm very good on drug withdrawal and had a lot of experience treating addicts and alcoholics, and then was asked to be the assistant director of that program. And about six months after I was asked to be the assistant director, the director quit. So all of a sudden, I moved into a directorship position in 1991, where I spent the next 20 years uh, treating addicts and alcoholics in a unit that got a reputation for treating the most seriously ill. When everyone else was done with them, we got them. And we, we could literally handle any situation other than needing a ventilator. If you needed a ventilator, we had to move you to an ICU. But anything else, and I mean anything else, we could handle. And uh, as a result, we treated about 10,000 addicts over those 20 years and saw everything and dealt with everything and saw multiple trends. Uh, I, there were really 30 years I was working at that hospital and I saw all the different trends of treatment for alcoholics and addicts. And uh, because of that, I have some very strong opinions. I've seen the trends. I've seen, I've seen the ideas come and go. Uh, very few, I, I lived, you know, I was spending a lot of time at that hospital and it was, it was a museum of psychiatry. I mean, I literally, because I was also doing medicine there, I was dealing with the remnants of the horror shows of the psychoanalytic era from the 20s to the 50s when people were trying to create, first of all, when psychoanalysis had a grip on psychiatry that was just insane. Uh, and then there was a small group within there who was trying to make a biological medical sort of uh, practice out of psychiatry. And the things they did, electric shock therapies, insulin well, shock therapies, parainfluenza, mm -hmm. lobotomies, cingulotomies. I took care lobotomies of all those still? patients when they were in their 70s and 80s. Oh. And it all had happened in the 40s and 50s. I got them when they were older. It was a mess. Oh, my God. Didn't you have a Francis Farmer wing there, Drew? Or was that uh, a rumor? I don't. Well, we had a, there was a charge nurse there named Fanny Farmer or something. I think that might be where the confusion came <laughs> oh, from. Okay. So, all right. 
So I don't, but maybe she was there. I mean, it, it was a place where Hollywood went. Uh, W.C. Fields died there. Yeah, that's right. Where, uh, lot, lots of, you know, it's, I, I took, I don't want to, I don't feel comfortable talking about it. I took care of a lot of serious movie stars in mm-hmm. the, back in the day. And um, I would dare say the treatment they got back then was, uh, again, another trend and another not very useful uh, for the alcoholic addict. Eric, just so you know how I know Drew, uh, which is a side portion of my career, I'm a drug counselor and also a group facilitator working in rehabs mm-hmm. in Lo- in and around Los Angeles. And I've worked in a lot of rehabs and also started a uh, luxury rehab in the early 2000s called Malibu Coast Treatment Center in Malibu. And through all this stuff, you know, I began to write about it. And then the book came out of it, Rehab Nation. And that's how I got to uh, work and become friends with Drew. And I still do that kind of work today. So, what drew uh, you to it, Mark? To 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 rehab, to all of that. Oh, I, well, I was covering it as a beat for the LA Weekly, Eric. I was like, I was a, uh, that was my beat was covering it. So I went undercover in different rehabs. I exposed some fraud in rehabs. I worked with uh, the, actually the district attorney's office here in LA to expose some phony detox facilities. It became immersion immersion journalism as as it was called back then you know kind of a gonzo situation where i could go in there and expose uh, what i believe was uh, an industry that at the time and still is quite a bit unregulated at the state level mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so, i mean we we survived prop 36 in 2000 which sent a lot of people out of jails directly to rehab who had no intention of going to rehab but wanted to get out of prison, Eric. So that became an explosion of every single outhouse, dog doghouse, telephone booth becoming a rehab in Southern California since they simply didn't have the facilities in place when Prop 36 uh, passed. I would argue that the, the really serious fallout started when these newly sober people who were also criminals started taking over and buying and running halfway houses. After right, that's two a, months that's of sobriety. Right, that's, that's when things were really collapsed. That's when things right. went into right. The original the original guideline was, you know, that you were allowed to have six people and a septic system to have a rehab in Southern California, Northern California, and that was designed by the legislature to make it into the size of a nuclear family with a septic tank, and not make it into an. That's, that's literally how they came up with a six bed. A rehab facility concept. There was there was also a big move to keep physicians out of the care of addicts and allow yes. the which was bizarre. I mean, bizarre. why would you want why would you want to keep doctors out of the treatment of a serious medical illness? I, I just because of, because of hospital legislation, hospital regulations, and hospital licensing. That mm-hmm. was the original intent. True was mm-hmm. that these facilities did not come out to be many hospitals. Right, I get it. I know, yeah, I know yeah. that. With doctors but, on but, staff. but that wasn't the motivation. I don't think. I think they somehow the the it, it felt it seemed like the counselor world wanted to run this thing, and and that was what the state decided. Well, where are we now? Let's look. Let's look at these homeless people. Now you went down there, and you seem to think that eighty to ninety percent of them are drug addicts at this time. Right? Uh, when you up. when you go on the street, when you go on the street, and you talk to people. First of all, don't be afraid to ask them what they're using. They will tell you <laughs> what's oh, your drug yeah, when you're yeah, using. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. there's the literally zero people I talk to on the streets, and I talk to a lot of people on the streets. Zero have told me they don't do drugs. 
The drug is sometimes cocaine, but typically meth and or heroin, fentanyl. Um, without not exception. Not just alcohol? Um, I mean, are there some? Uh, no, 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 really. no, no, no. Alcohol's no. there, but it's not a biggie. It's um, not a biggie. I, I, oh. Meth is the biggie. Yeah. Um, but meth but I... But I also ask, I ask always, I go, how, what do you think, what percentage of people on the streets are using? And they will, to a person, they always say the same thing, 90%, 90%, mm-hmm. 90%. So that's where I came up with my 90% number. It's from the streets. They tell me that. You're asking them themselves. My, 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 my selection, my group that I have come across, it's 100%. So, right. yeah. Well, meth is so cheap and so inexpensive here in California, Eric, that yeah. it's a, a $5 package is all it takes, you know, can last you a half to a whole day, you know, smoking that. And then everybody next to you has it. So you get this um, ghettoization of tents where they smush together, not because they're friends, but because they're friends using meth and the tents are all pushed together and they share the meth back and forth. So at the beginning of the month when they get paid, um, which is I still mm-hmm. believe in California is $220 a month. That'll go to literally 22 packages of meth times $10. It depends where they are. My understanding is a certain percentage that also goes to rent from the gangs. The gangs. Yes, that's a new development, though, Drew. That's a recent development. Gangs have now taken over these compounds and are selling the meth and literally running the compound. So there's yeah. a little bit more hands-on activity. But they get they, one way or another, the gang gets all the money, whether yeah. it's from buying meth or from rent. Or yes. then there's a whole trafficking thing with women going on. Where they're right, but the drugs come on. to them now. They don't have to leave the tent. Right. They don't have to go downtown. Like these tents that are all, these tent cities that are all over the city, the drug dealers come to them. They drive right. up, they distribute the meth and leave. Right, so right. they don't have to go. That's right. what I've seen. I don't yeah. want to be too cheeky, but... Um, you're talking about how easy it is to get meth and how inexpensive it is and everything, right? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I have sinus problems and allergies, and I have to freaking go to the pharmacist to get a low-level pseudoephedrine, Advil, mm-hmm. cold, and sinus, mm-hmm. and show my ID and everything else. Mm-hmm. And is it just me, or is that stupid? Because I can't help but go, well, I'm showing my license, and somehow I've completely stopped cold the entire meth production line. <laughs> it, it's not stupid in the sense that they were buying tons of it and making meth. Right, right. But, but it is uh, perhaps needless and certainly inconvenient, and might there be a better way? I agree with you on that. Well, the fentanyl epidemic, which uh, we were just going to talk about after this, I hope, is – yeah. Okay, this is hard to understand, so I'm going to try to explain it slowly as the kids are explaining it to me now in the rehabs. Every single street prescription knockoff drug is made of fentanyl. So if you were were to buy Xanax, for instance, it would look like Xanax, but it will be 100% fentanyl. Maybe not 100%, but some significant amount. They, They sometimes try to hide it so you can't really tell it's fentanyl with some Xanax or whatever, but... But, okay. but a horrible combo, lethal That's combo, really bad times. Yeah, yeah. Bad what times. they're telling me now that what you just said, Drew, was two years ago. Mm, could be. When they cut it with the actual. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Now it's 100% fentanyl. Mm. And every single street drug uh, is pressed to look like the street drug that it is. But it's fentanyl. And, and, and tell, tell me this, Mark. I, I, I'm trying to, I can't keep on top of this one. Mm-hmm. Because. I don't know. It, it changes all the time, which is the street market for buprenorphine. You know, we're just we're we're shelling out a lot of suboxone, and most of that gets di- a lot of that gets diverted. 
um, the actual price for Suboxone on the street? No, do you, do you, you, you'll, sometimes that you'll come, I'll come across groups of, of people on the street and they'll go, oh yeah, we're all using Suboxone. We all get it. It's cheap. It's available. You know, right. Judy gets a hundred pills. So we all just distribute it, whatever. You've talked about that before we go too far beyond it. You don't seem me, to be me? always. Yes. You, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Dr. Drew, um, mm-hmm. a fan of Suboxone or, or I, I am. No, it's a, I don't, I don't. I'm not a fan of Suboxone as the only treatment for opioid use disorder. The opioid use disorder is a complex series of illnesses. These are, it's the right treatment for the right illness in the right setting is what mm-hmm. I'm worried about. For the, the right the, period of time and under the right circumstances. Absolutely. 100%, my friend. And so this, I was, I was, and have been, and continue to be extremely worried about the excesses of Suboxone. I, I got into addiction treatment so I could see because because I saw people go from young people go from dying to amazing. I, I didn't know what that was. I'd never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to learn how to, what it was, how to help with that. And I ran an abstinence based program. We had markedly good results. People's lives were completely restored. They ended up flourishing like 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 Mark. I mean, just people could just do amazingly well. And. and and not that I treated Mark. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that that, that, that people can be, they just, they flourish. They just do exceeding. And, and that to me is, it was exciting and interesting and a, a philosophy developed that that was impossible. That opiate use disorder was a universally deadly illness. And if you even attempted to bring people back to their pre, pre-morbid state or in my condition, in my world, we made them better, better than they ever knew they could be, which was stunning to me. No, that was dangerous. That was killing people. Everyone goes on Suboxone. Everyone stays on Suboxone. That was the part I was oh. worried about. So and it's one I was saying, to another. And I was, well, not really, but I, I don't like yeah. to think of it that way. But 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 uh, I saw tons of Suboxone abuse. I saw tons of Suboxone diversion. And my biggest concern was the people that were distributing, the doctors were distributing Suboxone really didn't understand addiction. And these people were using multiple other substances while they took their Suboxone. That you have to understand the disease of addiction to, to take care of it. And we have created armies of my peers that really don't understand it and literally have said to me, abstinence is impossible, that there's they've never seen a case. And I'm here to tell you, we got around 30, 40% of our, of our 10,000 patients completely abstinence and flourishing. Eric, there's two types of, there's two schools of thought. One is uh, harm reduction and the other is abstinence, which is what Drew was discussing. They, they shouldn't be two schools. They should be, some people it's appropriate harm avoidance is your only way to save their life. Mm-hmm. And for others, you could be damning them to hell if you put them on too much harm avoidance. They, they're going to be chronically right. ill and needn't be. Right. Could they be stages like harm avoidance to yep. abstinence yep. later? Yep. Ab- ab- 100%. Absolutely. Okay. 100%. Okay. Well, wonderful. Um, I have a kind of off the wall question. I think it may apply to both of you because there's a different passion there. This is specifically for Dr. Drew right now. I've, you know, listened to you and interviews throughout a lot of years and everything else. And I've been taken by obviously you're a physician, doctor, but you also seem to be very deep into stoicism and philosophers and mm-hmm. being well read. I believe you're also a singer. And mm-hmm. I, it's a crazy question, but are you a physician for your father, but really a philosopher at heart? Oh, um, it's, a great, it's a good question. Uh, I, I, it's a hard question to answer, and I'm not sure I can fully get my arms around it, except to say, had I not screwed around for a couple of years in college and come back to medicine when I felt like the right thing for me to do, as opposed to do it for my father, as you say, 
Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, that would have been a mistake, and I would have been doing it for my father. But it, becoming a physician was one of the most important things I ever did. I, I don't know. I literally was having this conversation with my son this morning. It, it it did so much for me in terms of understanding who I am, what the human experience is all about. I literally don't know what I would have done had I not done the training and practice medicine. It was cr- super important to me. Now, I have all these other parts of me that that are that I pushed aside for many, many, many years. Uh, thankfully, I was doing radio along the way, so I had a little outlet there that was kind of creative and different. But uh, it's really only been the last nine years or so that I've sort of, you know, done a lot less medicine and tried to do more in the media area to try to use my experience and knowledge base to make a difference through through other means. Um, and so, you know, I had ten years of therapy on my belt under the, my belt in the middle of all this. It really helped me do the addiction medicine more effectively. And I think it helped me integrate all these different parts of myself. So I literally have almost three different, I was telling Adam Carolla this today. I like, feel like I have three different lives I've led, um, but they've all been very important to me. Well, the first one was trying to figure out who the hell I was, and what was going on. That was not so fun, but uh, medicine solved that for me and was deeply, deeply meaningful. I mean, I, I thought I was doing something so important and I loved doing it. Um, and then I got into integrating other stuff, into, other things into that. Did your Great medical question. medical path um because you're I feel like you are really serving people who are almost down to their core. Like you're you're looking at possibly the rawest levels of humanity mm-hmm. available or, you know out there as examples for people. Mm-hmm. Does that feed into the philosophy? You know, you're kind of looking at everybody, you know, stripped naked, so to speak. And well, I mean, working in the psychiatric hospital, I didn't know what that was until I got there and started doing that work. And so I and I was drawn to it. And I think I would have been a cardiologist. I know I would have been a cardiologist had I not gone off into working in the psychiatric setting. And so for whatever reason, I'm I'm well, I'm super codependent to use, you know, sort of common lexicon and something about that, the the breadth of the human experience and the brain, I was always very interested in the brain, just fascinated me. I, I just, it, I found it endlessly interesting, the, this, the, the range of what humans, how humans manifest. The, my interest in philosophy actually came a bit later, um, when, when all the answers weren't there in medicine. I started looking for other ways of, I wouldn't say understanding things, but, but contextualizing things. I mean, you, you hit up some walls sometimes when you're taking care of people and trying to make meaning of things. And what is the meaning sometimes? You have to kind of struggle with that a little bit. Especially this past year, right, Drew? With the oh pandemic. I mean, you and I have talked repeatedly about it, trying to help each other get through and other people. Yeah. I mean, it's just been insane philosophically on how to rectify what we've seen as wrong and right. Just basic right, right and wrong. Yes. yes. Maddening. Absolutely maddening. I yeah. mean, I've been down, you've been down, we've been up, we've been down. I mean, Wow. I mean, it seems like we're coming out. There seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. It, it, it does. Well, at least it feels like we can have discourse again. Which right. I, you, want, you, want, you want a reclamation project and a coming to Jesus media. Uh, National revelation. Of this. I, I want people to really examine what happened. I think right. we, need, we need really good look at it, understand it. So we don't do it again. And we can understand what we're dealing with here because uh, it, it's, if we don't learn something from this, it, it, A, there would have been a missed opportunity, but B, doomed to repeat it. Um, so I think we should take a good hard look at this. I, it's interesting to me 
that it feels like the moment that Anthony Fauci, who, by the way, I still defend to this day, I've said from the beginning, he would get us through this if we would just listen to him and let him be the leader. Because the reason I got involved in radio was Fauci was telling us young physicians, I was deep in the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. That's most of the patients I took care of. And he was telling us we got to go out there and educate and educate. He kept saying there'd be 2 million dead. There'd be 2 million dead if we don't get out there and change behavior. We didn't tell people they were killing one another with a disease that had a not a 1% fatality rate, a 100% fatality rate. Mm, I would yeah. I would see patients with their first pneumocystis pneumonia, and I would tell them, you have six months to live, and I was never wrong. It was 100% fatality, and we weren't sure how it was being spread, really. We knew sex and needles and things. We thought, no, nah, the other ways, too. We certainly wasn't a respiratory virus, but we were not out there saying, you're killing people if you have sex with them. We, I mean, it was insanity that we did that this time. How did you, you, uh, you, you were telling me that, that Fauci was similar in tone back then, even in the AIDS crisis. He, he was. Say, he's always conservative, and he's conservative and strident and a little excessive, and that's just and it's how he is, and he gets us through these things. Uh, why did I bring him up in the first place? Oh, I was going to say that it just seems to me that since he said, I, just recently, I guess yesterday, he said, eh, it could have been, we need to look at that Wuhan lab. That open the possibility of, of discourse again. I, I just feel like that kind of things when people took a breath, because I feel like I can talk about things t- literally today that I well, couldn't really I mean, talk the article, about. Without- the article by the ex-science uh, editor of New York Times last week kind of opened the door on media. The medium article. So. Right. I mean, that was a big that was a big deal, too. Drew. But, but if people are we can we can sit and talk about things again for the first time in a year and a half. Didn't uh, Fauci help contribute to the um debunked statement that was yep. you know front loaded yes, for every single article that was out there for a year please don't mistake my support for him saying he is flawless <laughs> or not culpable in some areas and not a political he's a political animal too i mean th- look at what he said when they were pushing him about mass you listen in retrospect think about this you know when when there were you know 30,000 people in the streets of hollywood he he was asked what about that he goes well people have a right to like no 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 what about spreading the virus and that well people have a right to well, I, you're a scientist answer the scientific question he should have said we have zero cases of outdoor transmission mm-hmm. wouldn't that have been a good opportunity to say that but well he's more of a political either. scientist than a scientist now Drew. i don't <laughs> practice this medicine okay. you guys are after him. okay Fair enough. well i mean i, I i'm just saying that <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I yeah, like I'm biased by my experience during the AIDS epidemic. He was extremely good and, uh, and quite a leader for all of us during through that. And so that that perhaps biases my opinion. Albert Pujols is not as good at 42 for the Dodgers as he was. Okay, all right, fair enough. I like Albert too, by the way. I know he's, he's <laughs> so, into, it's the romantic in you. You can't let go of it. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Right. Okay, I've got a super chat. I do try to read these here and there, and. I'm not quite sure the context, but it's Dr. Drew, with your in-depth knowledge of addiction medicine, how do you reconcile your opinion on vaccines with a 1% to 0.75% absolute risk reduction? So she's moving from addiction to vaccine Mm. therapies. I guess. Uh, And uh, I I would just uh, point at... I don't quite understand the question. Right. Are you yeah. saying the vaccines are not effective enough? Or are you saying that the risk of the illness is not enough to warrant a vaccine? Because both are viable questions. Mm-hmm. Um, That's and why I was confused. Certainly, <laughs> and certainly, let's assume she's saying that it's it's not a serious illness, the 1% fatality rate. And let's even assume a 20% morbidity, which is the long hauler syndrome, which is what I had, which I assure you is no fun. 
Um, if you're 25 years old, should you get the vaccine? I think that's kind of in her question there. Oh, the Joe Rogan. Uh, exactly. Uh, that's the Joe Rogan paradigm. And, the, and Joe Rogan analyzed it absolutely rationally. He said, well, your risk is, you know, zero, zero, zero percent in the vaccine. We don't really, it's an unknown just yet fully. And so, yeah, it's rational not to take the vaccine, which is correct. That is a correct and rational position. However, what's got to be taken into account is the, the responsibility we all have to reduce viral replication. The more this thing replicates, the more trillions of, par of particles there are out there, the more opportunities there is for mutation and for us to have to go through this damn exercise again, which I do not want to do. And I would just point at, look at the, look at the, look at the epidemiology this last winter. When we were in the deepest lockdown with the most profound masking uh, behaviors, we had a massive outbreak in this, in this country. It was a huge spike in spite of distancing and locking down and everything. It didn't really do much. Now, it's possible as we got into that huge pan, huge uh, spike, we all sort of curtailed our behavior, which smallpox research shows that humans do that naturally. We, when there's a pandemic of any type, humans naturally sort of withdraw. They sort of naturally go where they need to go to stay out of contact. They don't need the government to take away their freedoms to do that. And maybe we did that. And maybe that's why the curve came down. Or maybe... Who knows? We don't know enough about virus to even know what happened. Maybe the flu season ended, Drew. But the point, I, that's right. But the point I want to make, that's right. It might just be the natural history of the life cycle of this virus. Mm -hmm. But the point I want to make is when you have a truly effective intervention like a vaccine, look at what happens to those curves as compared to trying things like distancing and masks. I, look uh, at the two curves. One goes did, like this. Did, the other goes like herd that. immunity disappear to, Drew? I'm a little confused. Why don't we There's, have conversations? No, no. Where did it disappear to in the vernacular? Because it went from 60 to 65 to 70 to 85 I, to 95 I, to off the table, never discussed as long as we lived. I, I don't fully understand uh, <laughs> where people are. I think it has something to do with the uncertainty of the sustained immunity of a natural survivor of the illness. In other words, we have some decent data on the vaccine saying that it goes on for maybe 9, 12 months. Mm -hmm. We have data on COVID survivors that show 60% lose their humoral immunity within three or four months. Only 30%, which I'm lucky enough to be in that 30%, sustain their antibodies. That doesn't mean they're not immune because we don't yet fully understand the B cell responsiveness and the, the, the T cell function in terms of bringing back that antibody response should it be re-exposed to the virus. It may be complete. We may be completely immune, even though we don't have circulating antibodies. But that's the part that's confusing in terms of uh, okay. conversations about herd immunity. Just to address our question, if it's addressable, I, to me, COVID is a life-threatening disease and addiction is a life-ending disease. Yeah. Right, Drew? Yep. No, addiction is a... It, here's the piece that everyone missed in these... Uh, Look, somebody, I said something today, many on Twitter about, I mean, broadly speaking. Yes, correct. But but I want to just say that this, because you're triggering me to talk about the thing that bothers me most about the way we treat addicts, alcoholics, and homeless people today, is that, hey, man, uh, legalize everything, let them do whatever they want, which I'm agnostic about. I'm absolutely agnostic about that. However, if you were going to let addicts do whatever they want, you are committing manslaughter. You're committing them to die. It is a progressive illness, progressive progressive. And this is the part that everybody misses. They seem to think that somehow you just yeah, go use drugs, whatever. Occasionally people overdose, no big deal. And, you know, some people are going to die, whatever. They don't it progress. It, progression yeah. is in the nature of the illness. It progresses to death. 
opiate use. How many disorder. times did we hear from normal and the legalization of marijuana lobby that this is just about marijuana? That we're this, not going to legalize meeting. other drugs. How many times did you hear from normal? This I is about know. marijuana I, I, and not other drugs. There's legislation I, on the floor in Sacramento today for the legalization of LSD, psilocybin, and mushrooms today. I, I actually my feeling, just, you know, the reason I stay agnostic is my feeling is that the laws are created by the people. I'll mm -hmm. deal with what they, they may be advisable or inadvisable. I'll deal with the medical consequences. And that's true. You will. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mark, and I do I, I want to reach into it. <clears throat> I got a little bit of um, why Dr. Drew did. Are you attracted to the field in the same way in the sense that you're He's a doctor. He's treating people. You're a writer. Right. A I mean, I, I'm and attracted to it from a street level and a writer level. Like he's attracted to it from the medical level. I mean, there's a part of me that could be investigating uh, bank fraud as opposed to rehab fraud on the same level. I mean, so it, why? It, why? Excuse me? So what, why that? Is it's, it the same reason that about Thompson, it's the same reason Hunter Thompson joined the Hells Angels. <laughs> Not that he wanted to be a Hells Angel, but he wanted to write about the Hells Angels. And, and Hunter Thompson's uh, immersion journalism that he did. Sure. What I got into was, let me take a look at this from the inside out and see what's going on here in a closed society, which is what these drug rehabs have become. And I was appalled, as has been Dr. Drew over the years, as to what we found going on in there yeah. in this unregulated uh, uh, industry. And it's still, like I, we discussed, it's still an unregulated industry. And it's still a mess. It's still, even on my side where people are, are regulated and are, and are trained, the, 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 I don't know what it is about this illness, that it goes through these waves of um, trends of treatment. Uh, and when I got on the scene, the big treatment was psychiatry taking over addicts. And if you remember psychiatry, we went through a phase in, in addiction in the 12-step world where anybody taking psychiatric medication was not welcome. <laughs> and the reason that help happened is psychiatry stepped in and said, oh, no, 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 we're going to, we're going to deal with this addict thing and we're going to take care of them and we're going to treat them. They really are psychiatric patients and they grotesquely over-medicated these patients and uh, de-emphasized a 12 step and mutual aid societies and things that are now evidence-based. Let me say it again. 12 step is evidence-based Dr. Humphrey and Dr. Kelly from Stanford and Harvard both published a Cochrane analysis that shows evidence basis for, for mutual aid societies that are better, as good or better than any professionally managed interventions, and they're free, and they're available everywhere. And did I say it? They're free. If you're worried <laughs> about healthcare expense, these are free, and they're right. evidence-based. Why aren't we using them? Why aren't they, we pushing the, them The more? government does not like it for a number of reasons. One, that it's a... Um, a spiritually based program too. It's not measurable in terms of success as other juju beads are measurable and it's unregulated. It's three things that the government does not like Drew. I mean, that's, it's, you know, it is the arch enemy of government in a lot of ways, you know, in this city alone, we had every 12 step meeting shut down and the liquor stores and the marijuana stores were wide open. I mean, that's insanity. That's insanity. Mm -hmm. Addicts were not allowed to meet for recovery, and pot stores and liquor stores were open during in, a, COVID? in the middle of a pandemic. During COVID, yeah, during the state of I had, California, I have no idea. On, on, on the orders of the mayor and the governor. Oh yeah, not it was, it was bad. It was, it, 
it didn't go as bad as I thought it was. I thought we were going to have corpses all over the place, but the Zoom meetings kicked in. They kicked in at an extraordinary level, and they and they did bridge us across. They they worked for a while. Wow, it, it, it was really surprising. The other day, Drew, are there going to be more addicts when the dust settles? Oh my God, yes. Well, already, already, uh, alcoholics yeah. particularly, alcoholics yeah. particularly. This this the use of alcohol is just up. It's on, and I'm then overdose deaths up. Benzo, everything's up. Benzo addiction is going to go way up because I benzo is going to go. You're right. Panic and depression, anxiety and depression are the two main things psychiatrists are seeing. And unfortunately, we're in the uh, web of another pandemic that people aren't quite aware enough of, and that is the benzodiazepine epidemic, which yeah. actually is what was killing all the oral pharmaceutical uh, opioid users. All the, all the um, OxyContin users didn't die OxyContin overdoses. They mm -hmm. died of an Oxy-Xanax or Oxy-Ativan combo. Absolutely. Prince, hmm. Prince died of fentanyl-Xanax, right? The right. fentanyl knocked him off his feet, but the Xanax made him stop breathing. I believe we're going to see an epidemic of benzo addiction and recovery. Uh, yeah, coming out of the dust of this pandemic, we're going to see people crawling out of the basements with benzo uh, uh, addiction like you've yeah. never seen before. Yeah, yeah, I don't know different. how it's going to be sustained because I think well, they're going to be it, cut it, off. It's, it's well, but they're going to then they're going to go to the street and then they're going to be given. They're end up with fentanyl though. Yeah, so that's what I'm worried benzos. about. That's what I'm worried about. Yeah. Okay, I'm, um, I'm on my race to get this demonetized here, so I'll have my from, uh, <laughs> my weekly partner, uh, Allison Morrow, with the appropriately titled News with Booze. Oops. Um, she I wants to know if you yeah. think the concerns or the debate about concerns over the vaccine should be allowed on social media or I if think, it's, quote, dangerous information. Well, I think that... Uh, I, I am deeply, profoundly concerned about engineers and uh, social media managers determining what is dangerous information. That is insanity, in my humble opinion. Right. Um, I, well, think dis tell you. I think discourse about the vaccine, I, I think all discourse is good discourse. You know, I, I think, though, people need to be um, careful with the information that they're accessing and make sure they understand what things can seem very exciting and make perfect sense and be completely wrong. If, if uh, I may interject, whoever these people are who are doing this, let them come out of the shadows and into the bright lights of Congress and tell us why they're censoring these particular subject matters under the lights of a committee so they can come out of the shadows and not be hidden in a back room any longer. I don't think that's too much to ask. I think we need a media czar. I think we need a big tech czar at this particular time. If we're not going to violate and get rid of Section 230, Drew, yeah. I think we need to bring these people out of the darkness and into the light and have them explain to us why they feel certain subjects are taboo. This has gone so far off the rails at this point with people's livelihoods and professions being destroyed. Who are these shadowy figures? I'm tired of seeing Dorsey and Zuckerberg and yeah. the heads of these corporations who are completely oblivious to what's going on. Give me the censoring people. Bring yeah, them out, true. Not only that, I agree with you 100%, but I think the courts need to start to solve this problem. I right. guess Alan Dershowitz is bringing some cases. There's going to be some case law. Well, Garagos forward. is bringing some cases. Garagos is bringing some in. There's, there will be case Arms. law soon. And, and it always, you know, people feel at their liberty to slander and libel in social media, and that must stop. And uh, what's fascinating to me is one of the reasons that lawsuits for libel or slander were never pursued is because you couldn't prove intent. In the day of cancel culture, you are trying to harm somebody. That's mm -hmm. the nature of cancel culture. You are attempting to hurt them and, and, and strip them of their livelihood. That now, 
I mean, the amount of possibility, the the, the exposure to libel and slander now is just now massive. Once oh, the sure. case Somebody was pointed out to me that there are now medical influences all over Twitter who are being paid to be influencers in the medical department while others are being censored. In other words, these are two antagonistic forces now that don't even know each other. Paid yeah. medical influences, Drew. Weird. Weird. I have, I have one. I have one vaccine question myself. This okay. because I don't understand vaccines as a whole. Is it normal for people to be sick after getting a vaccine? It's common. It's, it's common. I mm-hmm. had hepatitis A yesterday. It made me a little sick. Um, I there are enough enough vaccines for me. I, the shingles vaccine knocked me to my knees for three days. What? Uh, really? Oh my god! Both both I've never felt both anything from any vaccine ever. Well, I know that's the way we're all very different. I I okay. know I'm sensitive to all viral stuff. I had horrible Epstein Barr when I was a kid. I so had, did I. Uh, yeah. I had H1N1 in 2009, nearly killed me. I mean, I've mm-hmm. had horrible viral illnesses in my lifetime, and I react to all the vaccines. And there are not enough vaccines on earth to satisfy me and my family. I take them all because I have horrible problems with viruses. And, and so, as I said, I took hepatitis A yesterday just for a simple trip. Um, and yeah, it's very common to get sick. Like I said, shingles, many of my patients get very unhappy after the shingles vaccine. Wow. And that's a, that's everybody over the age of 60 is supposed to get that vaccine. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's well, your, when your immune system turns on, it, you feel sick. That's what, the, that's what sickness, that's what viral sickness is. What do you think COVID arm is, Drew? Because everybody seems to be getting a frozen arm from COVID. Yeah, I don't know what that is yet. I'm beginning. I, I know there's a whole theory now about the adenovirus and the activation of the uh, the platelet system and endothelial relationship there. I have a sneaking suspicion that pretty much all of the vaccine reactions are just mini COVID. Uh, that there's something about this spike protein and how it was constructed, and I suspect it was constructed, that was designed to do some pretty tricky things, uh, and it and it's and it when you get small exposures, you're producing small amounts of spike protein, you get some version of that. It just makes sense to me. And all yeah. the side effects I'm seeing are all the things I hear people complaining about from COVID, or the things I experienced myself. 186 people died uh, in Oxnard when the salt vaccine first came out. They had to stop the salt vaccination entire program nationally, Drew, because they mixed up a bad batch with live vaccine in the batch that gave oh these people polio in Oxnard, California. The the, the uh, lab was here in California. And so there's a history of this. It's not that bizarre. I mean, look, all, all medical, it, I, I was, my dad was a family practitioner and you asked Eric about, you know, his influence on me and, and he had exquisite judgment and he had a, a sort of a saying that, uh, you know, medicines are bad. All medications are bad. You only take medications when the risk reward warrants it. He just reared me on that. And we live in a time when that's completely upside down, where medicines are going to solve all the problems. Um, and so you have to really keep thinking that, you know, any interaction, any pharmacological agent has the potential to really hurt you. So you have to, it has to be worth the risk reward. Now, in the case of a vaccine for a nasty illness, I believe it's worth it. The risk reward, in my thinking, is quite worth it. Um, I see no reason and no evidence to, to change that diathesis in my head. What are but your thoughts on the vaccine court? But it's not without risk. It's not a zero risk. If you walk in my office, just walking across the threshold of my office, ba- iatrogenesis can happen. Bad things can happen every time you interact with a physician. It's how it is. But on 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 whole, you still make out quite a bit better dealing with the medical system than not. 
What do you think of my cardial situation is with you? I, I don't. I'm not seeing much of really substantial. I I, I know, and I've got you some patients. About, right? I do know what you're talking about. I just don't. The data. I, maybe there's something there, but I just okay. listen. The, the the spike protein and the disease does something to the heart. I'm convinced okay. of it. I I had a. I had a temperature pulse dissociation, which you like only only see from typhoid disease. Mm-hmm. When I was sick, I had 103 fever. My pulse was 80, and I and I made note of that. I thought, well, that's interesting. That has something to do with what this COVID is doing, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And no, um, back to it though. Have you heard of the vaccine courts? And I'm curious your thoughts about that. Uh, I I'm aware of them. I don't have much thoughts on them. The vaccine what? Court. The vaccine court. My biggest, okay, I'll tell you flat out, my biggest concern, and it's a concern, I'm not mm-hmm. saying bad, good, vaccines in general, great. Sure. If a company, and I'm sorry, I don't trust pharmaceutical companies completely, if they are not able to be held liable for what they put out, if mm-hmm. they cannot be sued, if the suits go to a special court, oh, I, see. I don't feel as comfortable. I kind of feel like saying, you take away that liability protection, and I'll be the first in line. Does that make sense? Yeah. Why did they do that? I'm sure they had a reason. Well, I mean, my I think cynical it's because, side will say because it's profiting and there's too much risk. Um, my know, my understanding, I know I don't know what's going on in the particular pandemic, but but my understanding was the and I have lots of people I interact with that work in, in drug companies in in high level positions, and they do vaccines as sort of a throwaway. That is not something they profit from. And so if they are also going to be sued from a business, a line of business that, that provides no profit, they're not going to do it. And that mm-hmm. was the reason for the vaccine courts. Well, just to interject, enormous 1970s, 1980s jury awards was also a factor, Drew. Massive yeah, oh, awards sure. by juries. Well, of course, but, but that's the point. If, the, if, you have, if you have a product that you're doing for the good of society that you are not profiting from, maybe a tiny sliver of profit, and it has massive liability attached to it, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. Right. I, I mean, don't care who what, you are. What you're saying is why replace OxyContin with a vaccine when OxyContin may bring incredibly billions of dollars from to Purdue, for instance. You, you, you wouldn't. It's it's no human would take a massive liability with for no reason, for zero a business for yeah. no reason. That business's job is not to just do good. The business is also to profit and thrive. And if they if they they have a responsibility to their shareholders, if they're not paying attention to that responsibility, they are also liable for different reasons. But right. well, they're not uh, liable I, for this under the experimental use, right? There's no liability for this. Am I, am I, I again? There's the, these. I'm sure there's. There could have been. There, there is. No, no, because right. But of, I'm saying once it becomes an FDA approved vaccine. That yes, liability yes. waiver goes away, right? Uh, am I wrong? I mean, Trump gave them the liability waiver to do an experimental limited-use vaccine. But they, they don't have a blanket immunity from vaccines. I think it switches over to the vaccine court after that, yeah. The okay, okay. Yeah, that, yeah then I, I that becomes a liability factor for them. I'm afterwards. sure a smart lawyer could, if they wanted to bring a, a case to bear to the vaccine court during EUA, I bet they could. Really? I don't know. I bet I'll, I'll have to dig in know. with Barnes or somebody, honestly, yeah. because I, I, don't I, don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. But at, at some point, are these vaccines going to be approved, Drew? And how long will that take? Oh, I, I now now the most expensive part and the longest part about vaccine approval, any any pharmaceutical approval is the lawyers, right? right. 
it, it I mean, but before electronic media, it used to actually fill an entire 18-wheeler truck just with paper to get a single medication agreed uh, pushed through the FDA because of the legal wrangling and legal liabilities and moving through their lawyers. The science part is relatively quick. That's already happened. We've had the biggest phase three trial in the history of mankind. Right. But now right. moving through the, the legal aspects takes forever. Right. And it's extremely expensive on the order of $500 million. Mm-hmm. Okay. One, um, one last question too. And this is going all the way back to the homeless and the narcissism uh, to go full circle. You had mentioned how you've been seeing more and more and more and more of it. Mm-hmm. Is some of it location? More based? of the homeless? Uh, well, homeless too. Both the homeless, because I feel like it's made easy for them to get there, but also the narcissism, because a lot of people who suffer that will want to go to L.A. area. Uh, I'm sure that's true. I mean, my studies did show that people that pursue, you know, celebrity type, uh, you know, sort of pursuits are much more likely to be narcissistic, much more likely to have childhood trauma. And we our models actually showed that 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 celebrity was in a was a bid to solve the narcissistic trauma, solve the childhood injuries. And so, yeah, I'm sure it does. But look, we have laws out here that make it legal to use drug, legal to traffic drugs, legal to steal to support your habit. You tell that to my patients, they're coming. They're coming mm-hmm. from wherever they are. They can't get there fast enough. That that's and it doesn't get so cold at night. Extremely pragmatic. All doesn't get so cold at night, but you know that we lose more people to exposure than New York City. Right. Probably. That's how messed up things are here. Well, in New York City, they, exposure they, in Los uh, Angeles, a van takes you up and takes you to Randall's Island with a policeman right. and, a, and a nurse in the van, Eric. Here, right. they refuse to implement that program. They absolutely they won't, refuse. won't do anything. They won't even they clean won't up this. New York City, they, they take you up in a van. When you're, if you're a psychotic and say, that's my, you know, I'm rolling up my stool and putting it in a line in front of my tent. And I say, that's my, that's my belongings. You can't touch that. They can't touch that. That's how crazy it's become. Well, now they've stopped uh, and, being sanitation uh, 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 people from cleaning their uh, encampments. They now have to do it themselves. They said that, that no longer are they going to be ordered to clean there. So I think your your bubonic rats are coming, Drew. They're, they're coming. I've talked to several experts in plague, and, and we have something like 6 million rats here. And once the rat population hits a certain threshold, we've had typhus, which is usually oh, a precedes wow. bubonic plague bubonic plague will come it's just a matter of time so we will see that if if this the rat population continues to thrive the way it has it actually went down a little bit during covid so we had a little bit of a breather in terms of the progression of this but the plague has been now identified in california it's been in arizona and it's coming west and it will get here but when it does it will be kind of a problem because of the number of rats we have and the exposure to those rats uh, in the in the encampment. It's going to be quite a thing when that happens. Any opinion as to why the homeless were not decimated by COVID, Drew? Uh, outside. There's no transmission yeah, outside. Right. There's, no, there's no transmission. Good point. Um, but but um, what was the other thing we were just talking about? I wanted to get to. I'm sorry. Oh, that that this the I the the data we have on you know on narcissism is not regional. That's one thing I wanted to say. I mean, yes, I'm sure there are more narcissists drawn to television and whatnot, but but it's not a regional. It's not regional data. There, there has been an international tur- uh, turn towards narcissism. In fact, um, one of the things we put in the book was the data about fame seeking. Fame seeking as an autonomous m- motivation did not exist before the 1990s. 
Mm. And now internationally, you know, children, you know, if you ask children what they wanted to be when they grow up, they'd pick a profession or be a mom or have kids or have family, mm. blah, blah, blah. It, 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 fame started picking, started showing up as a separate motivator of what I wanted to do. I want to be famous. And it became massively persistent and, and pervasive internationally uh, across the 90s and 2000s. One, um, one last question on that. I have a relative who I believe may be narcissistic. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of relatives that were covered. Um, <clears throat> would it be fair to describe somebody as having a tendency who is, I'll just say needy, like sure. in everything. It's not like they're trying to be a celebrity. They're not, this person is not trying to be famous or anything, but this person always has to have the focus mm -hmm. center of attention yes and everything like if um if somebody says they did something it's because they knew that person if anything happens it, it's always circled to this person being the progenitor or instigator or supporter but i, I mean a hundred percent of everything is it somebody who's using using any substances Possibly, yeah. Because th that sounds more like that. Uh, when people are people are in alcoholism or in substance use disorders, they will manifest narcissistic traits. Uh, there were some famous studies in the '90s that showed that a majority of them will will lose those traits in recovery. Um, so, mm. so when they're sort of cartoonish like that, it sounds like it's like lying is what it sounds like. When there's lying involved. I always think about substances because it's that's like decades and decades. Yeah. And decades. I mean, really bad. It's not a young person. Yeah, I get it. And, and really bad <laughs> narcissists will lie. They will. And, and they won't even know they're lying. Um, but when it becomes a little cartoonish, usually there's a substance in there. It's, it could be both. It can of course be both, but we, we really don't know whether the narcissism will persist until we get them clean. Well, perfect. And I know that your time is very sacred, and mm, very I nice. want to thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Both of you coming on. Thank you. This is I didn't know we were going to talk about vaccine therapies. I wasn't pr fully prepared for that. But uh, I, I, and for the record, I'm interested in everybody making their own decisions. I, I am. Mm -hmm. Let's be super clear about that. I don't like all these people mandating and controlling and overreaching. I didn't think I lived in that country, but I've been shocked to see what has happened in the last six months. Shocked that people went along with it. There wasn't more pushback. And I think as we look back in the rearview mirror of this last year, there's going to be an, a, a, a reckoning of some type. The people Drew, have a lot of explaining to do. Is this an attempt to separate people from their personal physician and make it state run and federally run and, and inter, intercede where a person would go to their uh, GP? You you're hitting on something that's a a bigger topic. Yeah, and, I know. I know. And, and maybe has, we can have a sequel. Yeah, we'll have a sequel. But, <laughs> but it has to. has that has multiple sources to it, and it's not right. as though there's some government uh, you know uh, cabal that's trying to do this. Uh, one of the things that that came out for me in this pandemic was how many of my peers, particularly in primary care exist in corporate systems of various types or government systems that make it impossible for them to do what we're trained to do. I was shocked at mm -hmm. the way my peers behaved. They froze in place mm -hmm. until they were instructed by their corporate superiors or government superiors, what they could say, do, talk. My point that's was, what, that's what need, I meant. That's really what you I don't meant. need physicians. If that's the case, you don't need them. You use nurse practitioners and use, uh, 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 
um, physician assistant because you don't because I'm trained to to improvise and to use my judgment and to try to make the best decision for a patient in that in that environment. If you're going to just be following clinical pathway algorithms, you don't need physicians. And right. that I believe is the intent. I do believe yes. there's yes. because that's less expensive, yes. and that's a way to sort of reduce cost of medicine and get control over some of that. Well, look and, at the, uh, what the political damage that was done to doctors who came out, the America First doctors, the mm-hmm. all these doctors that were removed from the internet and the YouTube. Yeah, and many of them lost their jobs. Right. And, and right. I did not I did not realize how few, I, I've been an independent my entire career. I did not realize how many were in systems and working for others. It's a vast majority. And wow. it, it was not a good look. It really was right, deeply right. disturbing for me to, to yeah. see that. Well, the, the, uh, the, the heads hitting was what we saw, the two systems clashing. Well, I, I just saw silence where there should have been uh, a lot of noise. And, mm-hmm. and not just silence, but fear and frozen. And that is not the – you're supposed to serve the best interest of the patient. And I, mm-hmm. I, I they, were trying, they were trying to save their – asses save save right. from being fired and that was astonishing to me I, i've known forever that primary care was in deep trouble i i didn't know this part of it uh, uh and it, it is all again part of trying trying to um you know i make the physician less uh, a part of the system less important and make him he or she somebody that's three steps away supervising a bunch of other people which is not good care it's not mm-hmm. going to be good but here we are oh well, hopefully I can have you both back to discuss this in the future and other subjects. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.